0: Welcome to the AO Spine Research Top 10 podcast with Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org.
1: In this episode, we'll be hearing about the number six priority perioperative rehabilitation.
0: And we're going to be hearing from neurologists, Dr. Armin Kurt, as well as Julio Ferlin and Tim Berger, a person living with cervical myelopathy.
1: My name is Dr. Ben Davies, neurosurgeon, scientist, and founder of myelopathy.org.
0: And I'm Dr. Michelle Starkey, a scientist and director of myelopathy.org.
1: This is AOSpine Research Top 10 with Myelopathy Matters.
0: Welcome to this special podcast series with Myelopathy Matters, covering the top 10 research priorities that have emerged from the AO Spine Recode DCM research prioritization setting process. Ben, perhaps you could give us a brief reminder of what the AO Spine Recode DCM project is.
1: Certainly. Um, So this was a process that brought together people living with and working with DCM to try and establish some guidance that could help individual researchers work Faster, I guess, to find outcomes that could, that could change clinical practice. And one of the areas of guidance was, what should we be researching? And this process really involved asking people working and living with the disease, what were the uncertainties that they faced on a day-to-day basis? And we turned those into research questions, which were then prioritised, and we emerged with the top ten, which represents the perspectives of the entire field and what really we need to be investing time, resources and money into answering
0: but of course, the research community needs to understand what these priorities are and why they matter. And that is exactly what we're exploring in this special podcast series. Today, we're going to be considering priority number six, perioperative rehabilitation, or as the full research question states, what is the role of rehabilitation following surgery for DCM? Can structured postoperative rehabilitation improve outcome following surgery for DCM? And what are the most effective strategies? And to provide some clinical context and background to this question, I started by asking Tim Berger, a person who's living with DCM and who's undergone surgery for it, but who is also a clinical research student, what his experience of perioperative rehabilitation has been.
2: I had surgery for DCM and also radiculopathy about six or so weeks after I got diagnosed. So my process from diagnosis to surgery was was fairly quick. And I tried some preoperative rehabilitation, which didn't go too far uh, in alleviating any of the symptoms of myelopathy that I had. But then after surgery, I didn't have a whole lot of formal rehabilitation for a variety of personal reasons, time, commitments, etc. But Also, part of that was I was fortunate that the symptoms of myelopathy largely result fairly quickly after surgery. I'm believing a substantial part of that was probably related to how quickly I got surgery after I got diagnosed, right? So, for example, before surgery, I had foot drop walking down like the hallway, but that didn't develop until about two weeks before I had surgery. And I had surgery and then the foot drop was immediately gone.
0: So in your case, was the rehabilitation to prepare you for surgery or was it because at the beginning they thought they might be able to avoid it?
2: Particularly, I wanted to do rehabilitation beforehand to see if I could postpone surgery until a slightly more convenient time. I'm a PhD student and I was hoping that I wouldn't have to drop all of my classes. That didn't work out and so then I ended up having to to with medically withdraw from all of my courses and retake those courses to, to satisfy the, the requirements of, of a PhD. I wanted to do some conservative therapy in part to see if we could push off when that surgery was going to happen. In my particular case, it didn't do a whole lot. And there was a real limitation on what therapies could be done because of the neck pain, arm pain, etc. So all the therapy was was really designed around trying to alleviate symptoms. And it would alleviate symptoms for a day or two. But then they'd come right back. And there was no real progress. So we went to the surgical route. And obviously, the radiculopathy symptoms uh, resolved largely, but also some of the myelopathic symptoms resolved as well.
0: And has that remained the case? You know, you're doing quite well now.
2: I've since developed what are called hypertrophied uncovertebral joints, but there's really not a whole lot they can do until it's bad enough that they need to do surgery. So I'm in a bit of a holding pattern. It's rough in that it, it can really impact trying to be physically active and trying to exercise. I fairly quickly figured out that Running makes it worse. The up and down the accelerations of running makes it worse. I ran collegiate track for two years. Not very well, but I did it. I ran 10 Ks. I actually ran a half marathon three months before I had developed symptoms of myelopathy. And I don't think I could run for more than a mile or two at this point just because it's just just too brutal.
0: So... When this priority is resolved, how do you think it will benefit people with DCM as well as their carers and the healthcare professionals?
2: This is really a question that it has to fit together with some of the other research questions. For example, we need to have a pretty good idea what the natural history is. And we need to have a pretty good idea of when to do surgery, who to do surgery upon, et cetera. Perioperative rehabilitation, so either rehabilitation before surgery, rehabilitation shortly after surgery in a skilled nursing facility, rehabilitation six months out could really help to improve the environment of recoverability because we know in a variety of, say, orthopedic conditions like ACL injury, it can be very beneficial to have a structured rehabilitation program prior to surgery to get the individual to the most optimal point where recovery following surgery is, is most optimal. Likewise following surgery it can help to increase the recovery of strength and walking and coordination and dexterity in your hands etc. So I think once we identify what kind of exercise prescription, frequency, the intensity, of exercise, when to start it, how long to do it, et cetera, as well as other kinds of rehabilitation-based therapies might really help to enhance the improvements that people can see from surgery alone, especially because so much of the impact is on walking function for people with cervical myelopathy. And you can extend that also to potentially like a high-intensity exercise for hand recovery, et cetera.
0: And obviously, you know, different healthcare systems around the world do things differently as well. So that's another factor that's that's coming into play here, I think.
2: As a global spine community, we really need to take a look at the differences in healthcare system that could, could also be a, a key contributor to how well a person is able to re- recover. And this kind of gets at uh, what's called social determinants of health, your socioeconomic status, What kind of educational background do you have? All of those other factors could be potentially really important in, in establishing what are going to be good rehabilitation protocols. So I think if we can improve quality of life and functionality of people with cervical myelopathy, that's going to extend to improving quality of life of the caregivers as well. And that takes a large burden off of them and takes a large burden by extension off of society as well. Maybe the caregivers don't have to drop down their their employment status because they have to spend more time taking care of their loved one with cervical myelopathy. And you just get this, in a way, a trickle-down effect of now it's improving society as a whole.
0: And so what about healthcare professionals? How do you think this priority being resolved would help them or would impact them?
2: For healthcare professionals, I would say the most substantial benefit would be in really clarifying what kinds of recommendations do they give let's take the example of a spine surgeon right if, if we are able to establish what role perioperative rehabilitation has in terms of when should we start it what should we do how long should we do it how intense should we do it etc that spine surgeon has a much more objectively quantified framework that they can use in in prescribing rehabilitation. And that allows them to prepare the patient for what that's going to look like better. So it improves their communication with the patient and it also improves what their expectations can be of, of what kinds of outcome these patients might have. We know from a lot of other similar kinds of conditions such as stroke, spinal cord injury, et cetera, that exercise can be a really pivotal, really key therapy for enhancing recovery. And in particular, well-designed and well-monitored high-intensity exercise can be really beneficial as well. The rehabilitation guidelines for spinal cord injury that came out in the last year or two are now actively recommending high-intensity locomotor training in, in individuals with incomplete spinal cord injury. There's evidence that high intensity locomotor training, especially, but but generally speaking, all locomotor training can be beneficial for neuropathic pain, can be beneficial for improving walking recovery, and several of the other issues that individuals with cervical myelopathy might have. So I think we need to have some well-designed studies revolving around that.
1: So Tim has a, a really fascinating perspective on DCM. I mean, on the one hand he's he's lived through it, you know, he's undergone surgery. but on the other side, he's actively involved in the in the clinical research element uh, in sort of rehabilitation therapy is exactly what this this question is about. And I think one of the things that's quite interesting um, hearing from him is how he was struck by the fact that you know, all these other conditions, you know, stroke, traumatic spinal cord injury, brain injury. you know Rehabilitation is a gold standard part of care. And yet in DCM, there's absolutely no evidence behind it at this stage. And, and, and really, it's provision day to day is lacking.
0: Yeah, I was really surprised by this because it's such a big topic in the traumatic spinal cord injury field and becoming more so because without any other form of therapy, it's all we have. And there's a huge amount of research in this area stretching back years where they're sort of aiming to determine when do you apply it, how do you apply it, how long for, what do you apply, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, lots of questions, and I think perhaps like Tim, I sort of assumed that this information was being passed from one field to another. So I was really surprised by this.
1: And and there must be parallels to build up on there, surely. But I think one of the interesting differences for DCM and perhaps opportunities, which again. Tim touches on is that surgery in, in DCM is a semi-elective undertaking you know it's not like traumatic spinal cord injury where then there's a sudden devastating change and everything is an emergency operation with this everything is a bit planned so there is that opportunity to start to intervene before surgery you know that that concept of prehabilitation exists which is a, is a part of many other diseases and I think that could be a real opportunity in DCM
0: Yes, absolutely. And it's a key point that Tim makes, isn't it? That with DCM, you really have this chance to put in some work beforehand, which will hopefully aid your recovery post-surgery. Whereas in the traumatic field, of course, you know, it's just coming out of the blue. Um, so everything you're looking at then is is post-injury, post-surgery.
1: And these are questions you put to our next guests, Michelle.
0: Yes, two guests, in fact. First we hear from Giulio Furlan, who's a neurologist and assistant professor of neurorehabilitation at the University of Toronto and then we hear from Armin Kurt who's also a neurologist and a professor of neurorehabilitation at Balgrist University Hospital in Switzerland. I started by asking Giulio why there has been so little focus on rehabilitation in DCM despite the evidence and experience from the traumatic spinal cord injury field.
3: There is a growing evidence to support the notion that timely rehabilitation using the optimal time, volume, and intensity of therapy can maximize recovery. There is quite a variation in terms of access and even in terms of the modality that is, is applied and the intensity and the timing and the volume of the therapy. So quite a lot of variation that you need to account for when you're looking at the outcomes.
0: Mm. It's difficult to draw conclusions, I can imagine, when there's so much variability.
3: Yeah, that's that's really a major issue. And I think uh, as we see in neurorehabilitation of uh, individuals with traumatic spinal cord injury, that even though there is much better evidence in terms of the effectiveness of neurorehabilitation, it remains a main point in terms of comparison of the studies and the effectiveness of the therapies because of all this variation that we see in the clinical practice.
0: Absolutely. So why do you think DCM treatment has not been a focus for rehabilitation?
3: Yeah, that's a, a really important question. And I don't think we actually quite understand yet what is the reason. It remains many times a delayed diagnosis because there was a um, misdiagnosis initially. Sometimes is based on the fact that um, our colleagues are not maybe well-trained in terms of uh, diagnosing uh, or recognizing degenerative cervical myelopathy at the beginning of the symptomatology. There is also the problem of access of patients to specialized centers where there is a healthcare professional with experience and expertise in spinal cord disease. And there is also the problem of um, access even to patients to healthcare, which is quite variable in the different jurisdictions in the in the world. Just in my practice where I suspect there is a cervical spine disease, including degenerative cervical myelopathy, my first advice is always uh, doing a proper physical therapy, but really be concerned about some practices that I see um, sometimes is when um, there are colleagues and they try to do more extreme maneuvers, cracking the neck and uh, realigning the spine, which I advise patients to not pursue this kind of therapy because one side is getting the benefit of the therapy, but the other side is do not get any harm from the therapy.
0: Would you be able to explain to us why there's a distinction between non-operative treatment and then rehabilitation?
3: So rehabilitation is part of a non-operative treatment, but in fact, it is an active therapy.
0: Okay, and then would you be expecting someone with non-operative treatment to eventually end up having surgery, or can you completely circumvent that?
3: That's an excellent question, and I'm not sure if you actually have the right answer. Right now, we see many patients that they are left for a few years with the diagnosis and they they are doing very well until they start in progressing with a neurological deterioration. But I also have seen patients within many years, even 10 years, with significant imaging corresponding to what is the diagnosis of degenerative circomyelopathy mild symptoms and they persistently maintain the same symptoms. So we quite do not understand which subgroup it would be required to have a, a earlier surgical treatment instead of having a non operative treatment with rehabilitation only.
0: And on a practical level just because it's very interesting. What would be the difference between an example of a non-operative treatment versus sort of rehabilitation post-surgery? What are the differences in terms of the exercises or movements people would be doing?
3: In terms of non-operative treatment, it usually um, can be active or passive therapy, but it's more in terms of exercise for the patient to maintain range of motion and the strengthening. But when there is a rehabilitation plan after the surgery, usually it is tailored with the, a realistic patient-driven set of goals where the patient uh, tells exactly what they want to improve, it, and that should be within a set of goals that uh, are specifically measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-limited in terms of achievement for improvement of the function but also quality of life of individuals
0: and then uh, the next question is what is prehabilitation?
3: well pre-rehabilitation is a concept that um, includes the f- physical exercise and therapy and the lifestyle preparation prior to a surgical intervention stretching light jogging stationary biking as part of the warm-up can have a component that's more cardiovascular, which would include jogging, walking, in some cases, resistance training using resistance bands and so on. There is also uh, some programs that include flexibility training, including stretching, weight lifting, but also uh, techniques of yoga. And then finally, there is the functional tasks that they do on a daily basis, like climbing stairs, going down the stairs, and sitting and standing. So it's a, it's a preparation for the surgery that they get the most of the outcomes when they have the surgery, and they are prepared to also transition to a post-surgical um, rehabilitation
0: so i'm imagining that you know this is very relevant to people facing surgery for dcm then to get them ready for that and and you know like you say to give them the best chance of of a good outcome afterwards and how long would um a program of prehabilitation sort of last
3: uh, i think that's another ex- ex- excellent question that we don't have the actual support from from the medical and scientific literature to say I would say probably at least three months of uh, pre-rehabilitation. And again, that depends upon also the available resources, including financial support or even time or even personal support. Um, Some of them, they they depend upon uh, family caregivers. So I would say at least three months would be a reasonable time.
0: I was wondering what's compliance like? Do most people, once this program has been put in place for them, do they... You know turn up to sessions and do it or, or is that an issue that you have sort of motivation to do these exercises
3: well that is more dependent upon each individual but if they are committed to pursue surgical treatment they are usually motivated to get better which brings a subgroup of um, patients that you're interested to do their best before surgery
0: from your experience in this field, what would be your personal recommendations for answering priority six?
3: I would say we still need to increase the awareness of degenerative cervical myelopathy among the general public, but also among colleagues in the healthcare system, including healthcare professionals. And I think you need also to pursue further scientific work that can, again, demonstrate what is the most helpful and cost-effectivity for this population. It is, for certain, the most common non-traumatic spinal cord disease in the world. So we need to put together our heads and um, understand better what works and what doesn't work, but also be wise in terms of how we're going to expand our scarce resources in in the therapies for these individuals that uh, are really necessary. The earlier is the diagnosis, and the, the earlier is the intervention, the best is the re- outcomes that we see in rehabilitation. So, uh, increasing awareness would produce a much better outcome in terms of uh, their own relief of their symptoms, but also improve of, uh, their quality of life.
0: Yeah, and. Um... I know that there's a huge amount of research in this field in other neurological disorders, such as traumatic injuries um, to the CNS, so strokes and traumatic um, brain injuries and spinal injuries. And I'm wondering how much crosstalk there is between the disciplines.
3: Um, there is a crosstalk uh, among the healthcare professionals. But again, we don't have much in, in terms of a very specific analysis of the, the outcomes and data from non-traumatic spinal cord injuries. We know much better the therapies that work, the therapies that do not work, and uh, their value in terms of uh, optimizing outcomes after traumatic spinal cord injury than compared to non-traumatic and uh, spinal cord injury, in particular, degenerative cervical myelopathy.
0: And leading on from this last point that Julio makes about the importance of proper analysis of research findings, I next spoke to Professor Armin Court, who's a neurologist and the director of the Spinal Cord Injury Center at Balgrist University Hospital in Switzerland. I asked him what his views were on promoting research into neurorehabilitation. Neurorehabilitation
4: is the Logic next step after you do an acute intervention, either a medical one or surgical one. So you need to find the right way to get the change of the nervous system, being the brain or the spinal cord, to gain the most benefit from this intervention. So you need to train as healthy people also have to train. And after a specific condition, you even have to have a better training, a more targeted and more let's say, well-adjusted training to the, to the limits and impairments you have.
0: And I think also it's important when that training begins, and, and that varies a lot around the world and, and after different conditions, doesn't it?
4: There's definitely further research required to understand the sweet spot when to start this neurohabilitation. Based on preclinical findings, we intend to say the earlier the better. But it has to be a natural consequence of the the care intervention and then the neurohabilitation. And this sweet spot really needs to be better defined and and then being applied. And as soon as we have good data to showcase that we have better understood this sweet spot, I think the international community interested in neurohabilitation will just take it and, and, and go from there
0: in particular with dcm which is something different to traumatic spinal cord injury there could be a benefit of rehab and, and rehab training prior to surgery i imagine
4: first of all it's it's a chronic disorder which is slowly progressing but sometimes has some steep ramps where it shows itself to be more prominent to the patient and also to the physicians and uh, the impairment the unconscious impairment starts already quite early and the patient is compensating for the deficits he does not know about. So a kind of a neurorehabilitation or conditioning the patient before surgery may be a, a useful way to actually then improve the outcomes of surgery. This perioperative rehabilitation actually entails that you have a better understanding where the impairment starts. and showing and being able to uh, to reveal that there is already some kind of impairment which is slowly progressing and you can confirm that the, the cause will be a bad cause you do not need to wait for deficits so you should be proactive and understanding this proactive level is also something very important to the DCM community because the patients would have some certainty
0: Yeah, I agree. And from speaking to members of the DCM community, I think this information just isn't out there. It seems to be really variable depending on where they're based and and, uh, the expert that they're seeing. So I think a sort of better understanding and better communication of that would really help them actually.
4: So we learned in the stroke field that when patients sense a sensory deficit or a transient weakness, that they should go and have a look if that may be associated with stroke. So people became more aware of this and actually the patients coming early is actually increasing. And something similar is yet missing to advise patients potentially suffering from DCM. So they have no clue what to look for. And if you help them to better explain them early signs and symptoms, then they may be actually able to timely go and see the the doctor.
0: What exactly are your recommendations for approaching priority six and how it should be answered?
4: So it should start with a very comprehensive assessment, understanding the deficits. And rehabilitation medicine is very good in understanding and appreciation deficits. And then you have actually the intervention. And afterwards, you need to again then build on what you have been doing to improve then rehabilitation so in my understanding this perioperative rehabilitation is just part of this package how to best treat patients with DCM it's not a single event there are many consecutive uh, aspects that need to be covered
1: So, listening to these perspectives, I think both Armin and Julio clearly convey that there must be a role for rehabilitation in DCM care. We just need to better define this.
0: Yes, and they both highlight the importance of timing. So, Armin refers to what he calls the sweet spot for this. And he talks about the fact that, of course, rehab is the next logical step after an acute intervention to make sure that you make the most benefit of that intervention.
1: And that's also interesting because I think it really references how interconnected these research priorities are. You know, if we want to be able to better define a role for rehabilitation, we need the assessment tools to be able to measure that response. And of course, if we're going to be able to offer rehabilitation earlier, then we need to diagnose the conditions sooner also.
0: Yes, it's all very connected, and I think in terms of sweet spot, what he's actually alluding to is the fact that it's been shown that sometimes when you apply two treatments at the same time, then the outcome of that can be worse than when either a treatment is applied separately. So they sort of cancel each other out in a way. And there are published findings of this, it's certainly the case preclinically. And these findings have been used to inform clinical trials, of course. So for a specific example, there's an ongoing regenerative medicine trial for spinal cord injury for a therapy, an antibody therapy called NOGO-A. And in this trial, the treatment, the NOGO-A treatment is given first, and then the rehabilitation starts after that treatment has been given. And this was identified as advantageous using a series of preclinical experiments leading up to the clinical trial. And the simple interpretation in this case is that what you're doing is allowing the CNS to be plastic and then pruning down those new connections with the use of rehab.
1: How interesting, quite a, a different dimension. But I guess, of course, it again, touches on the importance of having that research relationship both preclinically and clinically, of course, which we touched on in, in the previous episode. But I think on a much higher level view, for me, this this priority, something that's so exciting about it as a sort of clinically orientated researcher, is almost how ready it is to go. You know, we have experience of rehabilitation from parallel diseases. We have techniques, we have infrastructure from parallel diseases. It's all there. It just needs some thought and attention.
0: Which is why, of course, it's one of the research priorities.
1: So thanks very much to Tim Berger, Julia Furlan and Armin Court for joining us. The podcast was researched by Elizabeth Roberts and produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV.
0: There's lots of information to be found at www.aospine.org forward slash recode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with the next item, number seven in our top 10 myelopathy research priorities from AOSPine, novel therapies. Don't miss it.
1: And to make sure you don't, why not subscribe via your favourite podcast app? Until then, goodbye.